What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories on this episode include an increase in SEC penalties coming, Matt Kelly explores, Vera Sharapanova on why employees don't speak up more, Neil Hodge takes a look at what happens when you have a regulatory sandbox, what about the DFS's first cyber breach resolution, the continuing wreckage of the solar winds hack by Mike Volkoff, What is the state of your DEI program? We look at, are you too old to be in compliance? An interesting essay by Dick Casson. And finally, the DOJ ramps up its FCPA enforcement prosecutorial firepower. New podcasts, events, stories, and more, all on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 243 for the week ending, March 12, 2021, the mask-free Texas edition. Jay, as Texas prepares for a wide-open and mask-free spring break in St. Patty's Day, uh, we had a plethora of stories this week in FCPA and compliance and ethics. You want to hit it? Let's do it, Tom. What's up first? First, we had an interesting article uh, from the coolest guy in compliance himself, Matt Kelly. And uh, Matt talked about a speech by uh, the SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw. And in this speech, uh, she talked about, first of all, in her speech, you have to read the speech because she cited to Matt. So you know, that's a big deal when the SEC commissioner cites to your written work, written body of work. But above and beyond her citation to the coolest guy in compliance, she talked about some philosophies of enforcement. And uh, it was interesting because uh, she said that, uh, in her view, the purpose of enforcement was to punish misconduct. And that is, uh, as in Matt's words, quote, oof. In the genteel world of SEC speeches, that is a haymaker punch, end quote. So uh, pithy, as always, the coolest guy in compliance goes on to talk about how we should think about penalties and, more importantly, how Commissioner Crenshaw thinks that penalties should work, meaning they should be painful. And simply because a group of shareholders benefited from something such as bribery and corruption uh, five to ten years ago, and a current group of shareholders may be having to pay the penalty for the prior shareholders who are now gone. Um, tough stuff, baby. Uh, we are going to uh, take a very hard look at you, and we're going to take uh, punishment to you. And what that means for enforcement is that uh, even more robust enforcement could occur, and more importantly for compliance officers, the ever need for ever vigilance and best practices compliance program. So. Uh, kudos to Matt for calling this out. Kudos to being cited. And um, this is a, a pretty uh, 
direct statement from a commissioner. Now, this may not be the views of the uh, commissioner, uh, uh, the chair of the SEC, uh, Gary Gensler. Nevertheless, we have one of the commissioners on record saying uh, the purpose of uh, punishment is pain. Well done, Matt. Uh, Here's the first of two from the FCPA blog. Uh, This one's coming to us from a friend of the podcast, Vera Sharapanova, and she asks, why don't people intervene when they see unethical conduct? Getting daily exercise, eating healthy, using dental floss, these are some of many things that we know we all should be doing, yet we struggle to do them. Behavioral science calls it the intention-action gap, when we have every intention of doing something and we know why we should be doing it, Yes, this really rarely translate into actual behavior. In the same vein, Vera asked many, if not of us, would say they would actively intervene when confronted with an unethical conduct, but in reality, most of us won't. Consider a recent survey conducted among the employees of a large Australian bank. When asked whether it was right to tell people who were breaching the physical distancing rule at the building entry to space out, Most employees agreed they would. However, when asked whether they would take action, many stated that they were unlikely or even very unlikely to do so. Here is the intention-action gap in effect, and the resulting bystander in action appears to be closely connected to speak-up culture and whistleblowing. Several processes have been used to explain why individuals don't follow through with their intentions, In 1972, psychologists Latine and Darley developed the most influential five-step decision-making model to bystander intervention. Adapted to the corporate scenario, these barriers for employees to blow a whistle would include the following steps. Failure to notice an event due to limited time, distraction, or self-focus. Failure to identify a situation as intervention appropriate. Failure to take responsibility due to diffusion of responsibility. Failure to intervene due to skills deficit, not knowing about the hotline or how to use it. And finally, failure to intervene due to audience inhibition. Weak speak-up culture, internal norms running counter to intervention, or a desire to maintain identity within the group. To overcome the intention-action gap, employees need to see raising concerns as a normalized and common behavior. It's also critical to continue with the capacity-building efforts through training programs, and when you measure their effectiveness, make sure to account for this intention-action gap, because changed intentions do not always mean changed actions. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, we had an interesting article about an interesting topic from Neil Hodge writing in Compliance Week this week, and he talked about a regulatory sandbox. Now, for those not versed in the tech world, a sandbox is where basically you test out ideas, and it's sort of a no harm, no foul play area that you can um, uh, put things to, to their test and really exactly what it says, no harm, no foul. This What makes this unusual is the regulatory nature of this, that this was developed by the UK Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO, and that's who uh, regulates and enforces GDPR in uh, the United Kingdom. And a large number of uh, companies, uh, both big and small, but from as large as Heathrow Airport and Nar- Novartis, 
work with regulators to ensure their products and services uh, strictly comply with GDPR and other legislation. It, it's not that uh, companies are getting a free pass, Jay. It's that they're having the opportunity to work in conjunction with regulators to make sure that their uh, products and services are, are going to ma- uh, pass GDPR muster. Uh, the uh, country of Norway has uh, started one as well, uh, n- rather Norway's Data Protection Authority. And so this might be something that we keep an eye on. And as uh, other data protection uh, authorities within countries uh, start this process, perhaps it could be uh, imported to the United States. I'm not sure prosecutors at the Department of Justice would ever go so far as to create a sandbox, but it might be an appropriate exercise for the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, and certainly uh, because of their remit to determine the effectiveness of internal controls uh, in a compliance program as well as financial controls. It could be something that uh, might be interesting and useful to the uh, compliance community, particularly when you wed that to the statements of uh, Commissioner Crenshaw that uh, more pain may be inflicted with punishment, but if we could uh, amp up the opportunities for, uh, I believe the phrase is a proactive remediation that you would talk about, um, perhaps, you know, this the two are not inconsistent and would actually run hand in hand together. So interesting article from Neil. Of course, we link to it in the show notes. Unfortunately, it's behind the Compliance Week firewall. But uh, uh, if you are a subscriber or can get a subscriber uh, to give you access, uh, check it out because I think it's well worth it. Great. Uh, Next up, we have one of our weekly contributors. We're taking a look at NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. We have the bevy of attorneys from Deba Voice who are taking a look at the first resolution by the New York State Department of Financial Services. This falls under cyber rules highlighting the risk of inadequate cyber investigations and the importance of satisfying state breach notification obligations. Last year, the group discussed the first enforcement action brought by the NY. Uh, New York State Department of Financial Services, DFS, which involved charges against the first American title insurance company. That hearing is scheduled for March 22nd. On March 3rd of this year, DFS reached its first full resolution under Part 500 Cybersecurity Regulation, a consent order with residential mortgage services that imposes a $1.5 million penalty for several violations, including failure to investigate whether an attacker who compromised a single email box access private data, failure to satisfy various state breach notifications, failure to notify the DFS of the incident, and failure to conduct a cybersecurity risk assessment as required by Part 500. Here's a recap of the event on March 5th of 2019. The email account of an employee who collects significant amounts of personal data from loan applicants, including social security numbers and bank account numbers, was compromised through a phishing email. Soon after, a residential mortgage determined that an attacker with an IP address in South Africa accessed the employee's email account on four separate occasions. The residential mortgage had, though residential mortgage had instituted a multi-factor authentication, the targeted employee granted requisite authorization by tapping on her phone screen on four separate occasions. It was only after the issue was raised by DFS 
that residential mortgage engaged a large firm to oversee a review of its contents of the mailbox and make the necessary regulatory notifications to state authorities and impacted customers. During the examination, DFS also discovered that residential mortgage had not conducted a comprehensive risk assessment as required by Part 500. Despite that failure, the company filed its annual certification. Here's terms of the settlement. In assessing the $1.5 million penalty, DFS considered the cooperation of residential mortgage, its financial resources and good faith, and the gravity of the violation. DFS also acknowledged the company's ongoing efforts to remediate shortcomings identified in the consent order. Other terms of the settlement included a comprehensive cybersecurity incident response plan, a cybersecurity risk assessment, and certain training and monitoring documents. Four takeaways are the need to, one, conduct a reasonable investigation of the cyber incidents, two, that DFS cares about compliance with state breach notification laws, three, the need to conduct a risk assessment, and four, the need for appropriate training. In conclusion, the consent order and the charges against First American demonstrate the DFS regards Part 500 as creating a substantive obligation for both business as usual and incident response. From a cybersecurity point of view, the incident in residential mortgage may appear insignificant, the compromise of a single email account, but the consent order makes clear that DFS views the severity of a cyber incident as dependent on the contents of the compromised data, not just the volume, and therefore a failure to conduct an adequate investigation into what was compromised may be viewed as a violation of Part 500. Depending on the circumstance, companies may be able to discharge their obligation to conduct a reasonable investigation by doing one or more of the following, assessing whether the contents of the mailbox were accessed, interviewing the employees to assess the likelihood that there is sensitive personal data in the mailbox, running targeted searches throughout the mailbox, or using automated review tools to look for further sensitive personal information, and number four, reviewing a sample of the emails in the mailbox. Then, depending on the results of these inquiries, the company will have to assess whether additional investigation steps are appropriate. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, uh, next up, we have a, uh, a certainly troubling article from our good friend Mike Volkoff. He takes a look at solar winds and the hack uh, that uh, has now devastated multiple departments of the U.S. government. And uh, he really looks at uh, how devastating a cybersecurity breach can be. So it starts off with the companies under investigation by the Department of Justice, the SEC, and multiple state attorneys general have focused on the company. The uh, U.S. government entities hacked were the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Commerce, Treasury Department, Justice Department, Energy's Department's Nuclear Security Administration, the Administrative Office of the U.S. Courts, as well as 20,000 individual customers. So uh, that's one heck of a hack. But he also points out the cost. And frankly, I don't see how SolarWinds survives this. They've already incurred $3 million in investigative costs. They have a um, just pathetically low insurance policy of $15 million. It's not clear from Mike's article whether uh, in, uh, investigative costs uh, are taken out of the policy. But, I mean, the state attorney general in Texas has sued for hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, as a big idiot as he is, you can bet uh, that uh, 
there's some smart attorneys generals who are doing a lot better job uh, than our attorney general. So um, the, uh, uh, I think companies need to rethink their risk management strategy, uh, certainly around your third-party vendors. Have you looked at their insurance for a cyber breach? If you haven't, I would suggest you do so. I also would suggest you become an additional insured immediately on those policies or at least at the next contract uh, when you have the ability to do so. But it really speaks to how dangerous and how, what a high risk this area has come. And we are now seeing uh, ABC compliance professionals moving into data privacy and data protection. Obviously, it's a somewhat of a technical area, but the steps of a compliance program are the same in both. So uh, expect to see more uh, breaches, expect to see more cost. Hopefully, people will wise up and get some serious insurance money uh, to help manage this risk going forward. But these types of hacks are, are here to stay, although you, know, you have to ask, if this happened in the Trump administration, what were the implications of that? So uh, the devastating impact of a major uh, cyber breach uh, certainly is a good one to follow on uh, based on your uh, article. Jay, what's up next? Uh, next up, we're going to visit with uh, Navex Global Risk and Compliance blog. We've got an article, and I hope I say the name correctly, by Chai Feldblum and Emily Cuneo D. Smet. And they're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, more transparency and accountability in 2021. Perhaps no year has forced employees to re-examine their work environments more than 2020. While COVID-19 has thrust upon us a workplace that is physically amorphous, the Black Lives Matter movement has also created an unprecedented urgency for a more genuine and diverse and inclusive workforce. Of course, most employers have long accepted the benefits of diversity in the workplace, and many have devoted significant resources to diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI initiatives. Only this past year, under the spotlight of the BLM movement, have employers collectively acknowledged that their existing methods have simply failed to pr pr produce sufficient representation and inclusion of Black employees, women, and other underrepresented minorities. In 2021, the authors expect a trend towards more comprehensive approach to DEI to include collaboration and input from HR, legal, ethics, and their compliance teams. First off, increase transparency. While employers have historically collected and maintained varying degrees of demographic data, many have shied away from sharing this information with their workforce or the public. More recently, however, some employers have published descriptive data about their workforce to make the commitment to DEI more transparent. Second, leader buy-in and employee engagement. It is unacceptable and ineffective to compartmentalize a company's DEI efforts or to expect their diverse employees to shoulder the responsibility of ad advancing DEI all on their own. It is critical that employers' most senior executives demonstrate their personal commitment to moving the needle on diversity together. Employees are encouraged to create an employee-driven DEI council, as well as an executive-led counterpart with clear communication lines between the two groups. Next, increased accountability. As employees, rather as employers embed DEI initiatives across their organizations, many are also implementing new mechanisms to hold employees and particularly managers accountable for diversity and inclusion. These mechanisms should include 
performance reviews that require managers to provide concrete examples of their efforts to make their teams more equitable and inclusive. Policies that demand civility, ensure consistent consequences for uncivil behavior, and empower bystander engagement and reporting. And finally, programs that require managers to regularly review and hold each other accountable for respective DEI efforts. Here's steps you can take as a company. First, examine the schools or groups with which you advertise your positions. Do those schools include historically black colleges and universities? HBCUs? Is your organization attending recruiting events held by diverse organizations? Number two, review your job descriptions to make sure commitment to diversity and inclusion is an essential requirement of every position posted. Reconsider your referral sources. Are your organization's female and black employees referring their contacts and colleagues for open positions at the same rate that their male and or white employees are referring? Four, train your hiring managers on strategies to check implicit bias. And if your hiring managers believe particular candidates do not demonstrate the skills or commitment for a particular role, are they trained to ask questions whether they would come to the same conclusion if the candidates were of a different race or gender or age? And finally, five, ensure that you're hiring and interviewing teams as diverse as possible. These are only a few examples of many strategies employers are implementing as they re-examine re their existing DEI efforts and acknowledge that simply prohibiting employees from considering race, gender, and other protected characteristics is not far enough to achieve meaningful diversity and inclusion in the workplace. While some of the changes to the work environment that the authors have seen in 2020 may be temporary, they are optimistic that employers' collective effort to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion will only grow in the coming year. Back to you, Tom. Jay, we conclude uh, with an article, at least uh, I conclude my portion, with an article by Dick Casson, and he looks at a demographic of compliance uh, of age. And he uh, says that the average age of a CCO type is 48 years, as compared with a general counsel, which is 55, and a partner in a law firm at 52. But uh, he really focuses on the bottom of the compliance employment pyramid, compliance officers and corporations. And there the median age uh, appears to be in the late tw in late 20s. And these are people who have one or two college degrees, and then some work experience before they move into the corporate compliance world. Uh, so that really speaks to a uh, much younger workforce. And one of the things that uh, has been my observation over the years is there's a large number of uh, women in compliance as opposed to other corporate functions. And one of the reasons uh, I think that was, uh, I found that to be true is the same reason I think that Dick sees these younger uh, ages in workforces, which is compliance is a relatively new profession. Uh, I think, uh, although you could say it certainly started in the 90s, it really became uh, much more prominent after Sarbanes-Oxley, after the first wave of FCPA cases uh, around the, from basically Siemens to the uh, Panel Penis Settlement Day in 2010, and then a continued ramp up of cases in the last decade uh, leading to 2020 being the highest year of record FCPA fines ever. And so, um, I mean, but City Citigroup uh, says it has 30,000 employees in compliance. 
So that tells you how much this profession has grown. And we both have been a part of this. We've observed this for uh, for multiple years. I, I would say at the last in-person compliance week conference, I was at the uh, Monday night cocktail party and I looked around and I said, you know, where are all those old, older guys that I used to look up to in compliance? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I and didn't, now you are one of them. What happened to all those, you know, uh, old characters that used to be in compliance? Well, you know, Tom. Uh, yeah. Uh, at any rate, um, the it was an interesting article by Dick, and I think it really uh, shows a couple of things. One is that this this is a great uh, profession for uh, young younger uh, professionals to come into because it literally is wide open. Um, I have friends that have been chief compliance officers at multiple firms uh, before the age of 45. So that, that's a pretty a unique opportunity in the corporate world. But also it speaks to the need of corporations to train people. Uh, you know, you, you came into compliance as a business development specialist, but you, you had a lot of experience in that. You didn't need to be taught how uh, to develop business. You needed to learn how to spell FCPA. <laughs> um, I, I came into this via the, the corporate legal function. And uh, so I had, uh, you know, some legal skills. I had been a, a general counsel in a company. And so um, I had uh, a, a trained skill set uh, to bring to bear. I had to learn the nuts and bolts of compliance uh, as opposed uh, to just legal work. So um, there's opportunities, but companies need to show and need to to train these younger uh, compliance professionals, and there may even need a, a mentorship program. And here we should shout out to our friends, Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine and the great women in compliance. Uh, they mentor women and they have been very conscious about that, very open about that. And it's not that they mentor women. It's that the GWIC, uh, hashtag GWIC mentors women. So uh, there are multiple places you can go for mentorship. Um, and uh, if you're one of those, uh, I'm teaching, um, compliance class at South Texas College of Law. So I'm teaching 21, 22, 23-year-olds about compliance. And, you know, Lord knows what's going to happen when they get into the workforce, Jay. So we'll have the millenniums there as well. Um, uh, but Dick was, I thought, spot on to, to talk about this. And it, it should give companies information that they need to then incorporate into their own internal training programs going forward. So uh, shout out to Dick uh, Kasson. Cool. Now, my last article, it wouldn't be a week in FCPA if we didn't check in with the Wall Street Journal Risk Compliance Journal. One of our favorite people over there and friends of the podcast is Dylan Tokar. And the headline is Justice Department's Foreign Bribery Unit Adds Prosecutors and Compliance Expertise. The agency recently hired a lawyer with a decade of private sector compliance and monitoring experience. The U.S. DOJ's high-profile foreign bribery unit has grown to a record size, numbering 39 prosecutors in totals. It also has moved to level up its compliance expertise, recently hiring a lawyer with experience working on DOJ-appointed corporate monitorships involving Brascom and Zimmer Biomet Holdings. Last year, the FCPA unit part of the Justice Department fraud section, played a part in levying a record high $7.8 billion in global penalties for corruption-related misconduct, despite limits imposed by the coronavirus, according to a recent year-end tally. Uh, 
Encouraging companies to proactively build compliance programs that can catch or prevent wrongdoing maintains a key focus of the Fraud Section's Corporate Enforcement Program. The Fraud Section now has several attorneys in the Strategy, Policy, and Training Unit who advise on compliance considerations. The latest addition is Lauren Kootman, a former member of the law firm Oric, and she's been in their white-collar and corporate investigations practice. She was recently hired by the Justice Department last month to serve as the compliance specialist in their strategy unit. Ms. Koopman's appointment, along with the other attorneys in the strategy unit, appeared to be filling a hole that was left in the fraud section by the departure of Wei Chen, who was hired back in 2015 to serve as the Justice Department's first compliance consultant. After Ms. Chen's departure in 2017, then Assistant Attorney General Brian Benskowski said that the criminal division would move away from relying on a single point person on compl for compliance expertise. Instead, the department would expand the expertise throughout a combination of training and diverse hiring, he said at the time. Ms. Kootman will work with Andrew Genton, an assistant chief for strategy uh, for the strategy unit, and uh, a Justice Department spokesman said, Mr. Genton has developed a focus on compliance and monitoring matters over his 13 years in the fraud section. There's really a lot of complex experience brought to bear, and we will always be looking to bring in people who have compliance expertise and experience as well, said Daniel Kahn, the fraud section's acting chief. At Oric, Ms. Koopman served on a monitor team overseeing Brazilian petrochemical company Braskem, along with its parent company, who in 2016 agreed to pay a combined $3.5 billion to resolve bribery charges with authorities in the U.S., Brazil, and Switzerland. Ms. Koopman also saw the monitorship process from the corporate perspective as she helped represent medical device company Zimmer Biomet during the latter part of a tumultuous monitorship that began in 2012 at Biomet when it was an individual company. The merge entity became a two-time loser and they acquired another monitor in 2017. Mrs. Koopman and her colleagues at ORC were heavily involved in helping Zimmer Biomet implement compli compliance recommendations from its monitor, which required them to learn the company business, said Angela Main, Zimmer Biomet's chief compliance officer. She will bring the right perspective where a company is at, what it's capable of, and where it needs to be in terms of a compliance perspective, said Ms. Matt. Back to you, Tom. It's time to uh, talk about podcasts and events. And uh, what does Rob Chestnut have to say on this week's version of The Compliance Life? So, Jay, um, Rob follows Jay Rosen in a trek across country. And he moves from the Northern District of Virginia out to eBay to be their third lawyer in 1999, working for Meg Whitman. So, uh, and he has, uh, he's at Silicon Valley. I, I don't say when it started, but certainly in the early days. And he talks about uh, what it was like at eBay, and he created a fraud remediation program that is still one of the gold—not uh, remediation, but fraud prevention programs. It's one of the gold standards in com consumer online uh, platforms, selling platforms. Then he moved to a couple of other companies, uh, and he talks about those experiences, taking companies public, and what that means from the compliance perspective. So, check out uh, part two of my four-part series with Rob Chestnut. Um, as you know, Jay, Microsoft has joined the Compliance Podcast Network, and this week uh, we had two more episodes drop in Voices of Data Compliance. Uh, they looked at information protection strategies, and then in 
uncovering hidden risks. Uh, Raymond Collin and Talamir considered how to determine your highest insider risk. Uh, I am extraordinarily pleased to note, Jay, that the Cordery Compliance uh, uh, Law Firm has joined the Compliance Podcast Network with a new podcast series, Cordery Head to Head. And uh, Jonathan Armstrong uh, interviews uh, Professor Eric Sinrod, and they look at 2021 and beyond in technology. So that was uh, a big, uh, a big uh, get. You know, we didn't get quarterly. It doesn't get much bigger than that. So uh, quarterly compliance and Microsoft. That you know, it bookends the Compliance Podcast Network. So, uh, but I think we have a new episode of Integrity Through Compliance Drop. You want to tell us about that? Sure. Uh, episode four dropped on Wednesday with my colleagues, Eric Feldman and Mikhail Reader Gordon, who you might also know from her Wirecard podcasts on the uh, Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, this week, my colleagues from Affiliated Monitors talk about what it's like to work with a monitor. So if many of you didn't get to take Monitoring 101 because it wasn't offered at your university, if you'd like a quick 30-minute primer on it, and said the British way from Mikhail, please tune in on the Compliance Podcast Network for our newest podcast about ethics and compliance. And I guess the last thing I'll talk about, Tom, is that please join K2 Integrity's Financial Crimes Risk and Compliance Experts on March 18th next week as they discuss the impact of ongoing developments in the financial integrity community. Topics will include regulatory trends and predictions for 2021 and beyond, changes in the AML, CFT, and ABC landscape, and implications of evolving OFAC sanction programs Information and reservation and registrations will be provided in the show notes. And Tom, uh, can you tell our listeners about the latest buy we have with the Compliance Handbook, second edition, written by yours truly, Tom Fox? Sir Jay, uh, this is going to be published by LexisNexis, and I'm extraordinarily thrilled to be working with them as their first compliance-focused author. And the, it will be out later this spring, but you can pre-order now at a discount, and we've linked to information on the book and the discount code. So check out the Compliance Handbook. I modestly say it is the single best volume on the, the nuts and bolts of building a best practices compliance program. If you want more some more really great stuff, check out my new podcast series, the Compliance Handbook, which is actually a pod tubing series. For those uh, not in the know on podcast lingo, that means a podcast that's video, a video pod on YouTube, audio on the Compliance Podcast Network, iTunes, uh, FCPA Compliance Re- Report, and a plethora of other platforms. So check out, check out all of those resources. Uh, they're great. And uh, Jay, you want to take, take us home? Sure. Uh, Tom Fox is the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining for this, joining us for this live stream of This Week in FCPA, episode 243, for the week ending March 12th, 2021, the Mask-Free Texas edition. Uh, we are at the one-year anniversary of the pandemic. And uh, Tom and I have managed to self-isolate and occasionally put on a dress shirt with a collar. So we thank you for joining us. We hope you and your families are safe and that you find uh, the strength to uh, carry on. 
Please keep isolated. We'll get through spring break and then we will all be together in the summer. Take care and have a great weekend. is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.